If you've been here at all over the last several months, we uh, you'll know that Pastor Josh was in the book of Daniel, and he finished that up this last week, and it was a good, what did it take, four months, somewhere around there? So we're going to see if we can stretch Mark, where we are this morning, into maybe a good eight months or so. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, it is the shortest of all of the Gospels. Uh, but Josh was, Pastor Josh was gone uh, at a conference earlier this week, and so he asked if I would care to uh, help him out and preach the first sermon on Mark. So that explains why I'm here. It's also my pleasure to do so. Um, I want to give you a bit of background material and history of both Mark and of his gospel. We'll look at it from a perspective of who is Mark from Scripture? What do we know about him? I'll give you a couple other historical uh, resources that reference Mark and his gospel. We'll look at the, uh, the background of the gospel, uh, why it was written, to whom it was written, when it was written. Uh, so to just start things off, we got to say we don't know a whole lot about Mark. Uh, we're, we're not given very much information about him. The scripture's earliest reference to anyone named Mark is found in Acts 12. Okay, And it's in Acts 12 that we see a young man named Mark, and he's identified as the son of Mary. And it's in their house, it seems, that the early Jerusalem church met somewhat frequently. In Acts 12, Peter has just miraculously escaped from prison. An angel released him. And it's to Mark and his mother's house that Peter returns. And it's where the church was praying for him. Now, it's likely that... Um, that their house was also the uh, the upper room in which the Last Supper took place. And it was also probably where the apostles were meeting in Acts 1 following the ascension of the Lord. Um, and we're told another detail about Mark. It's in Acts 12, verses 12 and 25. It says that his given name was John. Okay, so this is where we get the idea of a John Mark in Scripture. And this is the man, John or Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark. Now, Paul in Colossians 4.10, he identifies Mark as the cousin of Barnabas. Okay? And you'll, you'll remember from your reading of Acts, in Acts 13, Paul took Barnabas and Mark with him on his first missionary journey. And you might remember that Mark didn't do very well on that trip. You could say that his star didn't shine very brightly. Uh, he ended up deserting Paul and Barnabas after being their assistant for just a short time. And that desertion went on to cause not just a breach of relationship between those three, but also between Barnabas and Paul, who were co-patriots and, and fellows in ministry. And what happened is Barnabas and Paul decided we're going to go back through and visit those churches that we just planted. And Barnabas said, I want to take Mark along with us. And Paul was like, no, 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 hard pass. I can't trust the guy. He's not going with us. And so they separated. And Barnabas took Mark with him. And he went the sea route 
from the beginning of their missionary journey to Cyprus. And we don't know anything else about what happened for them. And Paul decided he was going to take the northern and western route, and he recruited Silas to go with him. And they, in Acts 15, returned and strengthened the churches that they had planted earlier. So we don't know what happened in the intervening time after they went back through, but about a decade later, Paul references Mark in his epistle to the to the Colossian church. And he references him in a positive light. And so we know from that and also from a later reference that Mark and Paul's relationship was restored. Mark was actually with Paul near the end of his life in his final imprisonment in Rome. Paul instructs Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So Mark had a rocky start in ministry, but it seems that as he aged and matured, that there was fruit being born. So Mark was with Paul at the end of his life. It's also likely that he was with Peter near the end of his life too. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, I believe it is, Peter's writing to the believers of Asia Minor, and he's sending them his greetings and also the greetings of the local church that he's with, and it's probably Rome. And then he also sends them greeting from a man named Mark. It's 1 Peter 5.13. Now, here's a name you won't hear probably again for several years, but Eusebius, which if you want to spell that because it's on the notes for the kids, is E-U-S-E-B-I-U-S. Eusebius was an early Christian historian and scholar who lived between 260 and 340 A.D. He quotes another man named Papias who wrote during the early 2nd century around 100 A.D., so maybe 40 years, 35 years after Paul and Peter were martyred. He He writes about Mark, identifying him as Peter's interpreter, and also the writer of the Gospel of Mark. And Eusebius, quoting Papias, has this to say. It says, Mark wrote accurately all that he remembered, not indeed in order of the things said or done by the Lord. For Mark had not heard the Lord, nor had he followed him, but later on, as I said, followed Peter, who used to give teaching as necessity demanded, but not making, as it were, an arrangement of the Lord's oracles, so that Mark did nothing wrong in thus writing down single points as he remembered them. For to one thing he gave attention, to leave out nothing of what he had heard and to make no false statements in them. All right, so that quotation from Eusebius and Papias very accurately describes the style and the character and the content of Mark's gospel. And it's because of this, because the events of Mark's gospel aren't sequential in order of history as they happen, nor does he record as many of Jesus' words and sermons. He kind of rather focuses on what Jesus said. He focuses more on what Jesus did. It's a very action-based book. And because of that, Mark was always treated as the least important gospel for church history, all the way up until the 1800s. 
And it was thought that Mark was clumsy. His Greek was kind of low class. He probably had really bad grammar. He was just artless. He just kind of was a hack. He did a bad job of recording the history of Jesus, the story of Jesus. And what's more is he didn't, he wasn't even original. He borrowed heavily from Matthew, who was much more popular because he, you've read Matthew, he just quotes scripture over and over and over, something that Mark does not do. But it was in the 1800s that scholars began to uh, rethink their approach to Mark and kind of question the history that had been passed down to them. And they hypothesized that of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the Synoptic Gospels, that Mark was actually the first Gospel account written, and it was actually the primary source for Matthew and Luke. It's where they drew material from for their Gospels, among, among other sources. And so this renewed interest and this closer study of Mark in the 1800s revealed what anybody could have told you if they had come at the Gospel of Mark with just fresh eyes, and that Mark's not a poor writer. He's actually a very skilled writer. He's a very skilled theologian. And he carefully crafted his Gospel to show us one main theme, one main idea, and it's this. He wrote to show us Jesus as the authoritative yet suffering Son of God. That's what Mark's goal is for us to see. That's what, goal, that's what his goal was for whom he was writing. For us to see Jesus as the authoritative yet suffering Son of God. And in fact, with the church in Rome being the most likely audience and the writing taking place in the mid to late 60s, Mark wrote to that church, to Rome, to fill a very keen need that they had. It was for wisdom and for encouragement in the midst of suffering. Because Mark was most likely written during a time of persecution at the hands of the Roman Emperor Nero. Okay. Nero... Um, most likely, history tells us, started a massive fire in Rome that destroyed more than half the city. And that took place in 64 AD. And just a few years after that, Paul and Peter were dead by 68 AD, both martyred at the hands of Rome. And so Nero, who was crazy by all accounts, he used Christians as a scapegoat for that fire. Now, another fun name that history gives us, Tacitus, he's a Roman historian who was alive during the, the great fire of Rome. He has this to say about Nero and about the persecution of Christians that he sponsored. It says, neither human help nor imperial munificence, which is generosity, nor all the modes of placating heaven could stifle scandal or dispel the belief that the fire had taken place by order. Therefore, to scotch the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits, and listen to this, punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty, a class of men loathed for their vices, 
whom the crowd styled Christians. First, then the confessed members of the sect were arrested. Next, on their disclosures, vast numbers were convicted, not so much on the count of arson as for hatred of the human race. It doesn't really sound like Christians to me, so I hope you'll understand that their culture was greatly misunderstanding and misconstruing their actions. I'll give you three examples. Early church history, the Christians faced persecution and misunderstanding for these three things. They thought Christians were were cannibals. They're practicing cannibalism in the Lord's Supper. It was thought that when husbands and wives referred to each other as brother and sister, that Christians were incestuous. And they thought that because Christians didn't participate in the cult of the emperor worshiping Caesar as a god, they judged that Christians were bad citizens. Because the religion of the time in Rome was thought of as a civic duty. And if you didn't participate, you were a bad citizen of that area, of that of the Roman Empire. It's kind of like if you live in Kirkoven or if you live in the Kirkoven area, if you don't go to certain events, people are like, you're not really one of us. If you don't go get a dad's Belgium waffle at the Civic Center for that fundraiser several times a year, you're a bad citizen. If you don't go to watch the KMS marching band parade through different communities at least once or twice a summer, you're a bad citizen of Kirkoven. If you don't go to Pillsbury Park during town and country days, you're a bad citizen. That was the idea of the early Christians. They were misunderstood, they were misconstrued, and Nero capitalized on it. It was simply expected, you do these things. You worship Caesar as Lord. And Tacitus continues, it's kind of, kind of graphic. And derision accompanied their end, the Christians. They were covered with wild beast skins and torn to death by dogs, or they were fastened to crosses, and when daylight failed, were burned to serve as lamps by night. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle and gave an exhibition in his circus, mixing with the crowd in the habit of a charioteer. He was having a grand time killing the Christians because It was fun to kill them, and it was also giving him a get-out-of-jail-free card for causing this fire. And so that's the context of Mark writing his gospel of Jesus to the Christians in Rome. He's emphasizing Jesus as the suffering servant of Isaiah, the authoritative yet suffering servant. And throughout his gospel, Mark keys in on the theme of the misunderstanding of Jesus. He's misunderstood by the crowds, his family, his disciples. He's, there's a large-scale rejection of him by Israel. Mark keys in on his patient endurance of that, and then he spends, for the, for the brevity of Mark, he spends 
quite a lot of time, a lot of length, focusing on Jesus' suffering and his death. And Mark says, the call of Jesus to follow him doesn't lead to peace and ease and popularity. Rather, we Rather, we see that since Christ's identity is only finally understood through his death, that Christians should expect to join him in his suffering, in sufferings like he experienced. But Mark also wants to know that in the midst of joining Christ, joining our Savior in his suffering, we can rejoice knowing that it's only because of his death, because of his suffering, and because of his victorious resurrection that there is good news. That the gospel that's first announced in chapter 1, verse 1, which we'll be in in just a moment, really does liberate us from sin. Really does bring healing to our soul. It really does lead to forgiveness and new life and a restored relationship with God. And so now we're going to look at Mark chapter 1, we're going to look at the first eight verses if you want to follow along. I will read them for us. It says, verse 1, Mark 1, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's take a moment and pray as we jump into the Lord's Word. Father, we, we need you. We can't see Jesus accurately without you, without the help of your Holy Spirit who indwells us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would cause our eyes and our ears, our minds to be open to your word that we might receive from you and know our Savior better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark isn't pulling any punches in his gospel's introduction. There's no mystery as to why he writes. It's all in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this book is uniquely and solely about Jesus. Whereas the other gospels give us more details, more sermons, more parables... Mark's picture of Jesus is almost as if Jesus is standing on a stage with the spotlight only on him. The background scenes and the other characters are just kind of set pieces, almost in the shadows. Mark is laser-focused on Jesus. 
And as the first gospel writer, this is great, Mark was the creator of an entirely new genre of literature. A whole new style of writing. Mark isn't Peter's memoir. It's not historical treatise. It's not biography. He says, this is gospel. What I'm writing is gospel. It's written to give voice, to verbalize, and to spread, proliferate the good news of Jesus, who he says is the Son of God. And when we, when we speak of the gospel, we get confused sometimes. We focus on moral change. But the gospel isn't summed up in obeying certain laws or traditions. It's not lifestyle. It's not history of Jesus. The gospel isn't even God's forgiveness, first and foremost. The gospel, Mark would have us know, is a person. It's Jesus Christ. And he introduces this Jesus with the words, the beginning of the gospel. And by doing that, he's intentionally hearkening back to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in, in echoing that language of God's first creation, he's telling us that his introduction of Jesus is as momentous and as weighty of an event as God's initial creation. This is big news. This is as big as God's creation in the beginning. His Jesus' appearance, it ushers in the beginning of a new era, era of creation by God. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians, verse 5.17. says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that, that phrase, new creation, it carries with it the idea of God's initial creation out of nothing. God bringing the world, the universe, space, time, all of that into existence out of nothing. And then Paul in 2 Corinthians, applies that to you and I. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You weren't here before the work of Christ. And so Mark, in hearkening back to Genesis 1, is applying great value to Jesus and to His coming. Now there's a quote that follows, an Old Testament quote that follows verse 1. And it's the only time Mark quotes Scripture. It's the only time. Any other Scripture you see in the Gospel of Mark is coming either from Jesus' words or one time someone else speaks Scripture and it is the crowd welcoming Jesus to Jerusalem. Hosanna. Hosanna. So this is important. This is the one time Mark chooses to reference the Old Testament. So Mark is grounding his gospel in the Old Testament promises of God. Verse 2 says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. 
That quotation actually comes from three different locations, not just Isaiah. It's Exodus 23:20, Malachi 3:1, and Isaiah verse, or excuse me, Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. And each of those Old Testament passages, in their original context, in their individual books, they refer to God Himself, God the Father, Yahweh. But here Mark is taking them from their original context of pointing to God the Father and he is applying them to this new character, Jesus. And by doing that, he is pointing his readers, he's reminding his readers of Jesus' identity as divine, as God himself. Now what should be surprising to us as you read through the Gospel of Mark is that within the first two, three verses, Jesus' divinity has already been explicitly or implicitly been given. Just three verses, three times. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. But very nearly everyone in the Gospel of Mark misses it. The demons, they know who He is. You're the Son of God. Jesus silences them. But the crowds that follow Him, the scribes and the Pharisees that question Him, His family that tries to control Him, and those whom He heals but orders to keep silent lest they misconstrue Him, they all miss His identity. And I think that's common for all of us. It's certainly common for me that as I read the Gospel, I miss Jesus. I get wrapped up in the little inconsequential details. And that is often the story of our lives too. We drift away. We're consumed with the details of our lives. We're forgetting Jesus is our life. And perhaps Mark wrote like this because the temptation the Christians in Rome faced was to focus on their suffering at the hands of the Roman Empire instead of keeping their eyes focused on the suffering servant. And we need reminders, just as the church in Rome did, that Jesus' true identity is found only in the cross. And so it's John the Baptist who is the first to understand, at least in part, Jesus' identity. He's the fulfillment of verses 2 and 3, their reference to one who would herald the coming of the Messiah. Verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Mark says, all the country of Jerusalem and all all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal... Sandals, I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so John's preparatory work, his way-making ahead of Jesus, it focused on just one thing, 
preaching that baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in preparation to receive one who would bestow the Holy Spirit. And that, again, is a reference to Jesus' identity as divine. That's only God's prerogative. Only God in the Old Testament gives the Spirit. And verse 5 says, The people of Israel responded in mass. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem went to be baptized by him. So thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people went out to the Judean wilderness, not to see this strange man in his strange clothes and his strange diet, but to confess, it says, and to repent of their sins and be baptized. Now, repentance, I'm sure many of you know, it means to change your mind about your sin and to turn from it to God. That's what they were doing. They were recognizing, I have sin. I am separated from God. This needs to be dealt with. Repentance is the reorienting of the entire person away from self. I will rule my life. I will make the decisions. It's reorienting from here to the Lord. It's, it's deliberate. It's a lasting recognition of my failure, of our failure to live according to God's perfect character and commands. But what Mark, Mark's words don't make completely obvious is just how repentance is possible. Verse 4 says that John proclaimed a baptism of repentance. And in, implied in that word proclaiming is the truth that John's message and his call to repent originated with God. This isn't John speaking. This is God calling through a prophet to his people. Repent. Turn back to me. Now, we won't. We won't do that. I might even say we can't do that. Genuinely repent unless God's call is extended to our lives and it's heard and obeyed. We, without Christ in our lives, without the Holy Spirit redeeming us, we don't want God. We reject God. We like our sin. It's fun. And so God is breaking into His world here again and bringing people to Him. But that call to repent that God was extending through the apostle, or excuse me, through John the Baptist, it wasn't an end in itself. This wasn't the goal, the ultimate goal. In, um, do you guys know that 25 years after the death of John, John the Baptist was still more popular and more well known than Jesus was in some areas? The Apostle Paul, when he got to Ephesus, which is recorded in Acts 19, this is around 54 AD, he met disciples of John the Baptist who had never heard of Jesus. Paul asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they're like, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And Paul leads them to receive Christ as their Savior. John was famous. Josephus is a early Jewish historian 
who spends this much time focusing on the ministry of John the Baptist and this much time on Jesus. Right? But John's goal wasn't amassing a following. The text says that he was a pointer. He was a way maker. He was a door opener. Here's Jesus. This is why I'm here. It's not for me. It's for him. John 3.30, the Gospel of John, John the Baptist says of Jesus, He must increase, but I must decrease. John says that he wasn't worthy to stoop down and untie the sandal of he who was mightier than him. And by saying that, John is identifying himself as the lowest, actually lower than the lowest of slaves in Jewish culture. He's way down there and Jesus is way up here. And in saying this, I'm, I can't even touch his feet. In, t- in, in saying this, John was telling those who followed him and were being baptized by him that even though his baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, it wasn't a permanent fix to their sins. Hebrews 10.4 says, It's impossible for the blood of gold excuse me, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And in the same way, water baptism following our repentance, it's not enough. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't remove our sins for us. Religious traditions, man-made things, they're not enough. They can't get the job done for us. And for our sins to be dealt with, John the Baptist's point and Mark's in talking about him, was that we need a more powerful and we need a more permanent baptism. And John the Baptist identifies this baptism as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And who brings that baptism? He says, one who is greater than I. Verse 9, which Josh will look at next week. The very next verse is, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Who is this that brings the Holy Spirit? It's the very next person who is introduced to us. It's Jesus. He brings the cleansing power and presence of God Himself. And so, to finish up, as we dive into the Gospel according to Mark over the next months, This is what I would ask for myself and for our church is that we would ask the Lord to prepare our hearts to receive a fresh, a clear picture of Jesus who is the authoritative yet suffering Son of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we... um, We need your eyes. We need the mind of Christ. We need your indwelling spirit to live in a manner in which you would have us live. 
It's very easy for us as believers to slip into a fleshly way of living, of, of just going through the motions, of being uncritical, of following the world, of following selfish desires, sinful desires, God. Because sin still lives in this, this body, lives in this flesh. But God, you've, you've given us your spirit that we can know and be renewed by Him. That we can experience new life, a new way of life, a new quality of life. And so God, we, we ask that You would bring that to fuller completion. And we can't get any more saved, but we can have a greater comprehension of Jesus as our Savior. We can enjoy Him more than we currently are. We can experience Him to a greater degree. We can live Him out and be indwelt by Him in greater ways. So God, we pray that for ourselves and for our families and for our church. That we would know this suffering servant in new and powerful ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.